So the NHL released their first diversity and inclusion report saying, quote, this provides us with a benchmark. Ken Davis coming forward saying that she's pretty proud of the work that's been done to this point, but she knows that there's still a very long road ahead. We go to Brock University, the assistant professor of sports management, Taylor McKee, kind enough to join me. Taylor, good evening. Thanks so much for having me. Let's talk about this because I know a couple of years ago that the NHL was being held to the flame pretty close for their lack of acknowledgement of diversity and inclusion. They've made the adjustment. They've now got their committee and they've come forward with their first report. I don't know if you've read this whole report, Taylor, but uh, your thoughts on the fact that there is one to even acknowledge. I think you made a good point here when it comes to the the strides that have been made in, say, about a year's time in the NHL. I think the NHL was was lagging behind many of the other major professional uh, North American sports and certainly sports uh, globally in this regard. And, and some of the findings in this report are, are very interesting. I think that it wouldn't be I don't think, terribly surprising to hear that 84% of the league and club employees identify as white and that uh, the black and indigenous people of color make up about 14%. So certainly that represents a good starting point here because so often when you're, when you're trying to establish uh, higher standards of diversity, equity, and inclusion, one of the largest factors when you're, when you're trying to, to demonstrate growth is having an, uh, a well-regarded, well-established baseline. So this is a really good first step because now we know what the baseline is. And from here, we can start measuring what success looks like. You know, I, I looked at the very basic analytic and they talked about, you know, 84% of their fan base is this and 84% of their players are that. But I look at a guy like Mike Greer, who was hired back in July to become the first black general manager in league history. He was with the San Jose Sharks. I know that that kind of quote checks a box, but there is definitely a pace here that is going to need to pick up. And and I don't say need in the fact that they got to do what everybody else is doing, but I think that there's a lot of talent out there that the NHL is still just dipping their toe into the water and they need to go for it. I think that's an excellent observation. And if we think about this in terms of diversity, equity, and inclusion, there's a number of issues that come uh, up with this. And, and certainly uh, hiring people of color is, is a big part of this. But if you're thinking about just even hiring of women, when we we saw Haley Wickenheiser hired for her first position, which was, I believe, was a skills development coach, and now she's been promoted uh, to assistant general manager. I mean, we are talking about one of the most highly decorated uh, hockey players in Canadian history being hired for a position that she's, you know, extremely qualified for, likely overqualified for. So you see the when it comes to hiring women hockey mm-hmm. players of any regard, uh, that's the sort of battle that women, which is, of course, you know, largely half the population have to overcome uh, in the first place. So certainly hiring of, uh, people of color in executive positions, which is another really important aspect of this, not just simply hiring people of color in, in, to, to fulfill any sort of quota or notions of diversity, but for actual meaningful positions of power. That's another really important measurement. Um, Certainly, Mike Greer represents a step in the right direction, but I mean, there are so many facets which the NHL needs to improve. It's just nice to have a baseline to sort of start with. Taylor, I want to ask you about Hockey Canada because I see right now what the NHL has done over the last couple of years to calm waters. And sometimes calming waters just means doing the right thing. And Hockey Canada's coming off a pretty, pretty bad couple of months here. Um, I know that they finally got, well, at least the masses got what they want with the dismissal of their board of directors, but there's still now a lot of reparation, a lot of work to do. What can Hockey Canada do to maybe take a page out of the NHL playbook to try and get this back on the rails? Well, that's an excellent question, right? And I think it's a question that Hockey Canada is certainly toying with right now and or what is sort of left with Hockey Canada, which is, I think, again, something that's very important to consider is, you know, who is left at Hockey Canada and who is making some of these decisions? 
or who's who's sort of comprising a lot of the inter-management committee, for instance. This is a, a bit of a one that I think requires a bit of a think in terms of Canadian series. Who is who remains? Essentially, there are four aspects that you should probably consider when you're trying to make large-scale changes here. First one is changing behaviors. The second one would be changing attitudes. Third one would be changing policy in the first one, and then the final one would be changing the financial allocations. Those four aspects, so attitudes, behaviors, policies, and financial allocations, each one of them requires a lot of, of time and effort. So hopefully the changing of attitudes is, has been occurring this year. Now, we can't guarantee that, certainly. Behaviors, this just means we're going to have to see uh, based on how they act. We'll have to judge Hockey Canada on how they act in the next few days. The same way with the NHL here, next few days, next few weeks, next few months, next few years. The NHL has established a baseline here. So now we understand a lot of the information that's out there and available. The question is, what are they going to do about it moving forward? That's a really important aspect of the NHL sort of plan now moving forward. Hockey Canada has established an action plan in the summer and, and fallen flat on its face in doing so. So it's hard to say that attitudes or behaviors have even been shifted at all. Certainly there needs to be policy revisions and governance changes as well before we can start about a reallocation of financial resources. But if the NHL can, or if the Hockey Canada can learn anything from the NHL to your question, it would be be as transparent as possible what the NHL is attempting to do in this with, with their announcement today and, and provide as much information to the public as, as possible. I, I look at the Vancouver Canucks. It's a, a team that I've followed for many years. They went out and they hired Cami Granato, Emil Castonguay, Rachel Dory, who has left the organization. And I think there's something uh, in the courts to do with that. But um, I looked this year at cap allocation, something that had been an absolute thorn in the side of the Vancouver Canucks for years. This year, they got it right to the penny. As a matter of fact, I think they got to the cap right perfectly. And that has a lot to do with Emil Castonguay, who's the cap management specialist, if you will, for lack of a better phrase, an unofficial term, but just a genius in the fact that she came from the side of being a rep to getting into the mainstream with an organization, and she is getting nothing but rave reviews across the board right now on the West Coast. So when you look at this transition, and I'm talking about this more from a sports management than a male-female, when you get that lightning-in-a-bottle moment, is that something that makes other organizations say, you know what, that's where I want to go? Because they used to have Mike Gillis, who did a great job. Uh, Miss Castingay's doing a great job. I think there's a lot to be said for guys and, and ladies, for that matter, who have been in sports management to come over to the other side of the fence. It's a great point. And, you know, when you're referencing the, the $0 threshold, I think I believe it was with LTIR bonuses and, and overages. And they hit that exactly to the to the penny. I believe the Leafs yes. were within like a, a $10 bill or so. I mean, this is, <laughs> if you're asking whether or not people take notice, this is actually precisely the kind of thing that, that front offices do talk about with each other. They talk about it in terms of, uh, of a sort of mutual admiration if you're able to, you know, ostensibly manipulate the salary cap, mutually agreed upon collectively bargained rules that govern the entire league. This is certainly something that that they pay attention to. One of the things when it comes to the proof is in the pudding with, 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 with regards to the meritocracy. I think with sports, we can convince ourselves that the best and the brightest are hired at all times, no matter what you look like or where you come from. And this notion that sports is this great meritocracy and that always the best and brightest float to the top is, is fiction, right? I mean, that's something that we've known uh, for, for many, many, many years. And there are many different reasons why that's a fiction, but it's a really pernicious fiction that has evolved certainly with the way in which women have been treated in the workforce as well. We're talking about half the population. Of course, there are skills being left 
on the table. And I think, you know, as Vancouver's capologist has proven that there is real value in taking people who are truly the best and brightest in their position and applying them in a skill set of becoming of their skills. And more importantly, giving them power and the authority to make decisions and not simply, you know, hiring a woman to be chief diversity officer or any of these sorts of things that you've seen sometimes in other sports as well, giving them, uh, according to their skills and experience, positions of authority. Final one for you, and uh, I was talking about this, I think it was what back on Monday, about uh, sports hangovers or sports depression might be a better way to describe it. I know that the Toronto Blue Jay fan base right now is still releaning the fact that they were that close and yet that far, but for the Toronto Maple Leafs, who have struggled for the last several years when it comes to that final game, that decisive moment, when you look at it from a management standpoint, how do you rinse the taste out of a fan base's mouth? And then maybe even more importantly and more specific to you, Taylor, how do you get it out of the boardroom's mouth when you walk in a week after yet another failure and try to find a way to turn the page yet again? Excellent question. And certainly one that is front of mind with, with many different fan bases. I mean, it can only be one successful team, right? There's, there's going to be, 30-plus other franchises and other markets that are going to be upset at the end of every year. So one of the things that's really a challenge in the way you sort of manage fan bases is finding meaning in, in what that sport relates to, how it relates to your market. One of the things that you're going to hear a lot, certainly in the Toronto market, is this, this notion that you know, the regular season has kind of lost its meaning. This is a huge problem for, for many sports organizations where if your team is ostensibly trying to be non-competitive because of the way that the system of compensation for the draft works, you can lose meeting in the regular season in terms of, well, my team's not trying to be very good. Maybe you're the Chicago Blackhawks, the Arizona Coyotes this season, and you're trying to obtain a, a superstar draft pick like Connor Bedard. The regular season can lose meaning. It's hard to sell tickets. It's hard to sell corporate sponsorships. It's hard to sell anything in that building during those seasons. But then you have the inverse with the Toronto Maple Leafs, where regular season success has lost a lot of its sort of meaning. And that's a huge problem. It's more of a problem than people realize in terms of the way that the, 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 the MLSC staff and other regular season uh, or other successful NHL franchises have had to deal with regular seasons in the past. One of the challenges is how do you connect that team back to that community when it seems like the entire year is just waiting around for April? And you were mentioning the Vancouver Canucks team you followed closely. This is something that was an affliction that, that followed them around for, for a few years there during the Sedin era where they'd be winning President's trophies and every regular season game was met with, yeah, well, let's see come playoff time. That's a really huge problem. And one of the ways that even the Toronto Raptors tried to solve this problem when they became quite successful but then ran into barriers over and over again is they reconnected with those local communities and said to themselves, well, we need to be seen as representatives of the community so that they're willing to come to regular season games no matter what. That way, when the Raptors were still running into LeBron James in the first few rounds of the playoffs in the years before they won their championship, they still were able to convince people that spending money, a lot of money on this team, was still a worthwhile investment. And that's certainly a challenge to facing teams that are successful like the Maple Leafs. I appreciate the insight today. Thank you, Taylor. Stop by any time, would you? Thanks so much for having me. It's my pleasure. Taylor McKee, Assistant Professor, Sports Management at Brock University. I'm Rob Fay, and this is On Point.